you will hear testimony, live and on video, from more than half a dozen former White House staff in the Trump administration, all of whom were in the West Wing of the White House on January 6th. You will hear testimony that, quote, the president did not really want to put anything out calling off the riot or asking his supporters to leave. You will hear that President Trump was yelling and, quote, really angry at advisors who told him he needed to be doing something more. And aware of the rioters' chance to hang Mike Pence, the president responded with this sentiment, quote, maybe our supporters have the right idea. Mike Pence, quote, deserves it. That was Congresswoman Liz Cheney Thursday night laying out the case that Donald Trump orchestrated an attempted coup to block the peaceful transfer of power and then sat back and watched in apparent approval while his supporters ransacked the U.S. Capitol. It was the opening night of six public hearings on the January 6th attack that committee members hope will galvanize the public to what they believe is an ongoing threat to American democracy. The hearing was marked by a compelling new video illustrating the role that the extremist Proud Boys played in the attack and how Trump's own words inspired them. A Capitol Police officer told of slipping on the blood of her colleagues while trying to defend the Capitol that day. But did Cheney make the case that Trump was criminally responsible for what transpired? We'll talk to the former Attorney General of the United States, Eric Holder, author of the new book, Our Unfinished March, about that and much more on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. So I thought there was a lot of compelling moments in the primetime hearing Thursday night. I, I was particularly struck by Carolyn Edwards, the Capitol Police officer who, you know, was doing her duty trying to defend the Capitol against this attack. And um, uh, I thought her account was especially gripping. You know, I did miss one of the things in classic congressional hearings uh, of great political scandals is, you know, the confrontational moments, having a witness and then grilling them and confronting them. And I think the way these were structured, it was not a hearing. It was video clips. There was a couple of, you know, there were two witnesses, the documentarian and Carolyn Edwards. But having a significant player, uh, an actor in the scandal that you're uh, trying to hold a hearing on, we didn't get that. Now, maybe we'll get that in the hearings to come, but I did miss that element from this performance, if that's what it was. Yeah, I I don't disagree with that. You know, I was going to start by saying that First of all, as you said, there were powerful moments. There were some revelations. There were some, you know, really intriguing kind of nuggets uh, that they put out there, including members of the cabinet who were invoking the 25th Amendment, including multiple uh, members of Congress who 
they said, went to Trump to ask for pardons. If they're asking for pardons, then, you know, for what? (laughs) You don't ask for a pardon unless there's a possibility that you committed a crime. So that was um, tantalizing. A lot more details about that. Well, right, right. So so it it was tantalizing, but it raises the question, okay, if they're going to put that out there, then they're going to need to flesh it out, back it up. If they do, I think that could be significant. But my criticism was going to be, and this is to your point about it wasn't a classic hearing, was that there were important, powerful moments. There were these revelations. But I didn't think it was a kind of coherent narrative that that the storytelling was as effective as I thought it would be. But our very insightful producer, uh, Mark Seaman, before the show, when I was making this point, pointed out that this is actually a a hearing for the digital social media TikTok age. And actually, the way people consume congressional hearings today is not like the way we did during the Watergate or Iran-Contra hearings, where you actually sit in front of the TV and watch and watch them. Yes. What, (laughs) you know, it's sliced and diced, and they consume it on social media, and they see video clips, and they see you know, bits and pieces here and there. And so uh, I hadn't really thought about that being an old guy, but that makes a lot of sense to me. Now, uh, what impact it has, um, it'll take a while to figure out and, you know, we'll probably see some polling. It is, you know, I think everyone does fundamentally understand that most Americans' views on on these issues are, are baked in and that the country is so polarized and the media is so fragmented that you're not going to see huge shifts uh, in public opinion. Just two last quick things I'll say about this. There may be small shifts, and that could be important. And also, there are other audiences, and some people have pointed out that there is an audience of one. His name is Merrick Garland. He is the Attorney General of the United States, and he is presiding over the criminal investigation of January 6th and potentially Donald Trump. Maybe it'll have some effect on him. I also think that there's another thing that came out of the hearings last night that was that was really interesting and that we're going to see play out for the remainder of them. I think that every single witness, I'm going to make a prediction, every single witness is going to be a Republican. I think that their line of attack is to basically provide evidence from the mouths of the conspirators and of the people who engaged in this themselves. And I think that that is an incredibly powerful line of attack and an incredibly powerful technique for making their point. Absolutely. And you saw that with Bill Barr, you know, calling Trump's lies bullshit. You saw it with Jason Miller, who's about as partisan a figure in the Trump administration as as you can find. You saw it in the Trump campaign lawyer who said that, uh, you know, the president was told that we couldn't find any fraud. And then quotes from, you know, people like uh, Ivanka Trump and Ivanka, his own daughter and Meadows, who said, you know, there's no there there. (laughs) There may be no there there. Right. Or you mean there's no there there. I am particularly looking forward to the testimony from the Justice Department folks. Jeff Rosen, who was the acting attorney general and particularly, you know, this guy, Richard Donnie, who I guess was the deputy attorney general at the time who wrote the email referencing, you know, this is insanity. 
Right. His language is particularly colorful. Uh, right, uh, right, right. And I think that can be a really compelling moment. But, that you know, that's the kind of thing you like to see at, at, mm-hmm. at high patience. profile well, Patience, Mike. Patience. Yeah. You know, more to come. This was the prime time moment. We so here, used, so yeah. here's a poss- possibility of, a, of an interesting witness, potentially. And we don't know this is going to happen. But, you know, John Dean, of course, was the star witness during the Watergate hearings, the, the White House lawyer. One of the things that we heard last night was that Pat Cipollone, the uh, White House counsel during this the period— whiner. The, the, the whiner. The whiner, ac- whiner according Jared to Jared. Kushner's, uh, uh, Jared phrase, Kushner. Right. But that he uh, threatened to quit over and over again to stop the insanity that was happening. Now, I think there have been negotiations uh, with the committee about whether he'll testify. Uh, if he does testify— that might be very dramatic testimony and might get you the kind of witness, Mike, that you're talking about. Well, we will see. We will see. I mean, I, I think they do have to deliver on, you know, what they teased last night, for instance, like the members of Congress who have sought for pardons, which is what Cheney said. She mentions this guy, Scott Perry, whose office apparently has denied that he was requesting a pardon. But, you know, what's what do they got on that front? I mean, it is possible. I assume that some of these members were seeking pardons for others unrelated to January 6th. We don't know, but I want to see what they got. But that was like one provocative you know, moment. Also, who was the witness who says, who, who recounted the conversation with Trump in which he says um, they're doing the right thing? I think that was Casey Hutchison. I think that was I think that was an aide to Meadows, and Meadows recounted that conversation to her. But maybe there were other witnesses, and yeah, that would be I a don't know. that would be a surprise. Last thing I want to say here is this actually goes to your point, Victoria, about um, using Republicans to make these points and to reveal, you know, all of these things. Liz Cheney, um, you know, is uh, probably uh, the most effective prosecutor against Donald Trump uh, since all of this uh, began, you know, going back to January 6th. I can't think of anybody else who's been more effective in framing the issues and methodically laying out the case um, and now the evidence, um, and we'll see how she does in examining uh, witnesses. But what an irony, I mean, that, you know, before January 6th, here's someone who was, you know, essentially reviled by Democrats and now is probably you know the most effective prosecutor in in this case altogether. Yeah, excellent point. We've got a great guest to talk about all this. Uh, longtime friend of the pod, Eric Holder, the former Attorney General of the United States. So let's get to it. Okay, uh, we've now got with us. Eric Holder, the former Attorney General of the United States and the author of Our Unfinished March. General, welcome back to Skullduggery. All right. Good morning. It's great to uh, be able to speak with all of you. This is an anniversary show, and I want everybody to remember (laughs) I was your very first guest. Oh, we well remember. We well remember. You, You launched us. Right. right. I set a very high bar that you guys have consistently (laughs) exceeded. All right. So we are speaking the morning after the January 6th 
primetime hearing on Thursday. To the extent that what you've seen so far, uh, General, what did you make of it? And I guess more importantly, the key question is, have they made a case sufficient that one of your successors, Merrick Garland, ought to be following up on and bringing a criminal case against the former president? Yeah, I mean, what I've said in the past is that I expected that the hearing would show that the the breadth and depth of the conspiracy to stop the transfer of power, and we need to stop saying peaceful transfer of power, just to stop the transfer of power was much broader, much deeper than than we expected, and we were shocked by, by it. As you listen to, in particular, Liz Cheney last night just kind of lay out the case, I think that what I have said was borne out by what she says they are going to prove. And I don't have any doubt that they, in fact, are going to be able to show the things, back up the things that um, that she said. You know, Justice Department's gotten a lot of concern expressed about it, criticism directed at it. I think the reality is that we have known enough from the leaks that have come from the January 6th committee, uh, from the great journalism that people have done, it, it, just exploring these facts, that the Justice Department has to be doing something. You know, the precise parameters of which we don't know, but I would be shocked if there is not now underway. Um, you know, we have very gradations of investigations in the department, a preliminary investigation as opposed to a full field investigation. There is clearly, there clearly has to be an investigation what, underway. In your mind, what specifically is the strongest criminal case that could be brought against the former president? Well, the former president, I, I think even those around him, I think, you know, conspiracy to obstruct, um, conspiracy to defraud the United States, given what happened on January the 6th, you know, seditious conspiracy, but a conspiracy charge that revolves around what happened on January 6th, what led up to uh, January the 6th, and then the things that occurred in terms of both ongoing actions and a cover-up after January the 6th, all of which I think um, you can put into a very strong conspiracy charge that ha- would have a number of components to it. And, and not don't forget that that conspiracy charge doesn't have to only confine itself to that which happened in Washington, D.C. The phone call to the folks in Georgia to find me 11,780 votes, whatever, whatever the number was, that would be a, a prime specification uh, in a conspiracy charge. So just back to the hearing itself for a second and the events of January 6th, one of the things that I thought was you know, pretty effective last night was showing the coordination and planning between the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys uh, to the point where they're meeting in a shadowy parking lot on the evening before the assault, and then those two groups were in the sort of vanguard of the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Would the Justice Department have to make, uh, they have not yet shown any direct ties between what those groups were doing and the president or even the president's closest advisors. Maybe they have that evidence, but we haven't seen it. But to bring a criminal case against Trump or against his closest advisors, would they have to show that connection or could they do it just on the basis of all of the other things that, that happened? Yeah, there's going to have to be, the, there's the need to show some connection, just as a, in, in a practical sense. You're going to have to try to convince a jury that 
the person, the people who you are charging had played some role in the formulation of the plan, the carrying out of what happened on January the 6th. Yeah, there has to, you have to show some kind of of a connection. But a conspiracy charge, you have to have an agreement and then you have to show that there was one act in furtherance of that agreement. And um, I think there's going to be a whole variety of, of things Again, we've not seen everything, you know, at this point, but my guess is that we're going to see a whole range of things that are going to have put in the, the crosshairs of, of prosecutors, people at the Justice Department, uh, people outside the department, this guy Eastman, people at the, at the White House. So in the introduction to your book, your new book, Our Unfinished March, you have a line that says our democracy is on the brink of collapse. Do you really think that's true? Yeah, I think untended, that is exactly right. I mean, that's, that's the point of the book that, you know, we have faced in the past a range of threats to our democracy and we have risen to the challenge. We are facing a threat to our democracy now, the likes of which we, we have not seen maybe since, I don't know, since the Civil War. I mean, our electoral system is under attack with voter suppression. Uh, we've, the January 6th um, thing that we're talking about, attacks on, on, on the um, electoral infrastructure of the nation, you know, racial and partisan gerrymandering. All of this puts our democracy at risk. And if we don't respond in, in a strong way, it doesn't mean we'll have a dictator. But we can have elections every two, four, and six years that are essentially rendered um, meaningless. So one of the the criticisms of the January 6th committee's hearings is, of course, that they're preaching to the choir, which is presumably the same people who also believe that our democracy is on the brink of collapse, and that there's a, a, a very substantial portion of the American public who not only don't think that our democracy is on the brink of collapse, but they believe that they're the the true the true believers in American democracy and the people who really are sustaining our democracy. Is there, in your mind, any way to bridge this divide? I think we have to keep trying. You know, I think we have to try to, uh, I hope that's one of the things that the January 6th committee will be able to do to reach people who are persuadable. Now, there are going to be a certain percentage of the American people you're not going to be able to reach. I mean, you know, there are people who think that the moon landing was fate. You know, so, you know, UFOs are going to come landing on Pennsylvania Avenue, you know, next Thursday. You're not going to be able to reach everybody. And yet there's a substantial, there's a majority, I think, of the American people who um, can be persuaded by facts, by evidence, by testimony. Uh, And I think that's one of the real, real benefits or potential benefits of having these hearings and doing so in a way that is public, in a way that the Justice Department cannot do. You know, not secret grand jury um, proceedings, not interviews done by the FBI that are done in, in private, to have all of this stuff exposed and to have emails, you know, put up on um, big screens so that the American people can can read them. Are we going to reach everybody? No. I, I mean, remember, Watergate didn't convince everybody that Richard Nixon needed to go. He had abysmally low poll ratings, but he still had supporters, even after the, the existence of the tapes and the, the Rosemary Woods thing and, you know, did, with the racing tapes, he still had some supporters. And so there will be certain numbers of people in the United States who, who remain um, unconvinced. I think the vast majority of Americans, however, can be convinced if they make their case. want to talk about the book, but before we do, I just want to go back to the January 6th stuff. And in particular, uh, Danny was asking about 
the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, both of whom have now been indicted for seditious conspiracy. One thing I think a lot of us were looking for was to see whether the committee could establish any connection between those groups and the people in Trump world. And a lot of us were looking for Roger Stone. We knew had a relationship with the Proud Boys and had them serving as his security guards when he was at the Willard Hotel during that week. But we didn't see it from the committee. They did not show any communications between Roger Stone or anybody in Trump world and those Proud Boys. And if anything, the fact that the Proud Boys, the one thing they did document last night in the video is that the Proud Boys were lining up and leaving, heading towards the Capitol as early as 1030 in the morning, well before Trump even spoke, which kind of undercut the premise of the second impeachment trial, which was that Trump incited the mob. In fact, You know, as the committee showed last night, the mob had begun even before Trump spoke. So I'm just saying, absent, if they don't have that evidence, if it doesn't surface, then does that take away a conspiracy case that involves the violence? And we're just really about the obstruction of Congress through John Eastman and the Green Bay sweep and all that. It wouldn't be the violence that took place on January 6th. Yeah, well, one group, all right, so maybe the Proud Boys started marching at, I don't know, 1030. I'll defer to you on on that. Mm -hmm. But not everybody marched with the Proud Boys. You know, it wasn't just the Proud Boys who were up there in front of the Capitol, and it wasn't I don't think everybody marched at 1030. People moved after uh, Trump gave his remarks. I, you know, a lot of the stuff will be questions of fact. What does the proof show? And what we don't know, we know that, and I don't remember it's since Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers, you know, there have been pleas from some of, you know, the leaders of those groups or people involved connected to those groups. What a what they are saying to uh, people in the Justice Department, we don't know, you know, at, at this point. So there's a, there's still a lot that we we don't know. There's a lot that we're going to hear. And we've got to look. I mean, you're asking the right questions. We have to look for those those connections um, between that which happened physically on January the 6th uh, and then people in high ranking positions in government, but also the planning that led up to what happened on January the 6th and whether you can show the connection between that plan to keep Trump in office and the violence that happened on January the 6th. But you can actually have it, you know, I think what you just said, Mike, is, is important. You can actually have it operating on, on a couple of tracks. There's the physical violence thing, and there could be a conspiracy there. But you could also have a conspiracy uh, to obstruct, conspiracy to defraud that just deals with the attempt to keep Trump in office, irrespective of what happened physically at the Capitol on, uh, on January the 6th. You know what this reminds me a little of is a Trump defense on that as well. I was just listening to my lawyers, right? I mean, John Eastman told me we could do this. You know, Rudy Giuliani told me there was fraud. I'm just relying on legal advice. And I was going to say, it reminds me a little bit of uh, it, during your tenure, you had the question of what to do about the lawyers at OPR that had signed off on the uh, torture memos, right? The, the defense that the CIA had is, well, we were just listening to the lawyers. And ultimately, that, you know, prevented you from bringing a criminal case on torture. Do you see the, a similar parallel there? 
Well, it, it, you know, a lot of it will depend on, you know, th that's getting to the question of intent, uh, intent and then, you know, legal protections. With regard to intent, I mean, you're going to have to ultimately believe that Trump actually thought, actually thought that he won the election. You know, given that, he that actually, he's delusional, he probably did. Uh, you, you say that you say that, but you, you put that in front of a jury in light of all the stuff that they'll be able to have to, to show all the people who came up to him and said, the, you know, the stuff that you believe. I mean, I guess I saw the the, the clip from from Barr yeah. you know, last night. It's BS that, you know, that'll resonate with uh, with a, a jury um, about the and from his own daughter. From who, his own daughter, I'm, who right. said she believed Barr, and from his own campaign lawyer. So, I mean, so that really undercuts the notion that he actually thought that he won. With regard to the question of legal advice, I mean, that also, you know, depends on the advice that he got, whether a reasonable person could believe what that lawyer was saying, and then look at the legal advice it's, it, itself. You know, I'm more worried about the initial questions that you all were asking about drawing necessary connections uh, as opposed to um, the defense of, uh, you know, of, of legal legal advice, you know, or, or intent. I can handle those if I were the prosecutor. Also, for, for what it's worth, a, a lawyer can't actually adv advise his or her client to commit a crime, can they? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, if everybody knows that you didn't actually win, but I'm going to give you a, a legal way, and I'm, I'm using air quotes now, a, a legal way for you to obtain something that you did not actually win at the ballot box. That legal advice is uh, not worth, you know, the paper that is written on. So let's talk about the book. You know, most Americans, I think, did not really begin to get concerned about the fragility of American democracy until Donald Trump was on the scene, a... Uh, candidate and then president with uh, authoritarian tendencies and then someone who actually acted in authoritarian ways. But in reading the book and, and having covered you for years, it, it's, it strikes me that um, you started thinking about some of these themes quite a bit earlier, really in the, in the second Obama term um, and your second, ter uh, second term as, as attorney general. And it was through the lens of voting and also the Supreme Court. So talk a little bit how, you know, we, we covered you closely the first four years. You were preoccupied with uh, national security issues, Guantanamo, terrorism, and then uh, things really shifted and criminal justice reform, but in particular voting, voting rights became your, your cause. Uh, so talk about how that happened. Yeah, you know, um, voting rights is always uh, our democracy, if not a fragile thing, is some. If it's not always been a fragile thing, has always been something that we have to zealously guard, nourish, uh, and protect. And, and and the book talks about how you know various people through the course of through the during the course of our, our history have risen to the challenges and and protected the nation. For me, I thought that when I became attorney general. Yeah, you know, there would be voting cases that I would have to bring. Uh, but I ended up speaking at the LBJ Library, I think like in 2010, maybe early 2011, where I'm actually already giving a speech and talking about how the Justice Department will stand steadfast in its protection of voting rights. Then the Shelby County decision happens in 2013, in the second term, where the Supreme Court guts you know, the Voting Rights Act. And then states, in response to that, start putting in place a whole raft of measure, unnecessary measures with regard to photo ID, poll closures, purging, a whole range of things 
that made the topic of or the subject of voter protection something that moved from you know maybe third or fourth on, on my list to, to maybe first or second along with you know with national security concerns it's been something that has been something i focused on all during all my career but the shelby county decision in particular in particular really um and the reaction to it, the, the you know the, the the way in which states try to take advantage of that decision, uh, really directed my attention towards the protection of the right to vote, and impelled me to stay involved in the work after I left the uh, the Justice Department. And it's actually one of the reasons why you know I wanted to write the book to make people at this time understand that um, as hopeless as it seems, as difficult as it seems, if we look back at our history. We know that if we stay committed, uh, focused on these issues, that ultimately um, we can overcome these threats to our democracy. If I can circle back to Shelby County real quickly, a name, uh, a case that also bears your name on it. But I never call it the Shelby County versus Holder case. It's always for me just the Shelby County case. That'd be like it's Dred Scott versus Holder. I'd never, you know, you don't want your your name associated with that case. You know, that was a Supreme Court of 2013, we've got a, a Supreme Court that's got a, a pretty significantly different makeup and one that might be considered even more hostile to voting rights than that court was. I'm wondering, first of all, whether or not you agree with my characterization of the current Supreme Court as being hostile to voting rights, but more particularly, I guess what I'm wondering whether or not there's any prospect for legislation regarding voting rights on a federal level that could survive a uh, challenge before the current Supreme Court. Yeah, I think that you could draw legislation that can pass muster, even with this supermajority conservative Supreme Court. You know, I, I think the way in which those bills that failed in the Senate were constructed, where you take the Voting Rights Act and you make it nationwide in scope, you have a coverage formula that is more up to date that deals with the problems from Shelby County, that you could actually come up with bills that would pass constitutional muster. And having said that, this is a Supreme Court that is not a friend um, or not a bunch of friends of voting rights. You know, we have seen the court, I think the three decisions that will define the Roberts Court when it comes to this era, when it comes to this area, are, you know, Citizens United, Shelby County, and the Rucho decision, which says the courts are not, the federal courts cannot be involved in dealing with partisan gerrymandering. Those are three anti-democracy decisions that I think will be a stain on the legacy of this court. Uh, in, in the same way, for those who follow the history of the court, you know the Lochner era decisions, where you know the Supreme Court used its ability to block early legislation in the New Deal and was you know castigated um, for it, and is seen now as having exceeded um, you know its authority. I think those three decisions will be considered 50 years from now, 100 years from now, whenever, um, 10 years from now, as comparable to the to the Lochner um, era. But I think you can draw I think you can draw legislation that would pass constitutional muster. Um, but in the absence of that, you're going to see this Supreme Court. I think next term, uh, it's what I fear. Um, go after Section Two of the Voting Rights Act in the Alabama case that we won that we won in Alabama with two Trump judges on a three-judge panel um, that said that the lines had to be redrawn in Alabama because African-American citizens were denied uh, their ability to exercise their full political um, power. I I fear they're going to use that as a vehicle to get at Section 2 and then really render powerless the, uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which is the crown jewel of the civil rights movement. 
So speaking of the uh, Supreme Court, the uh, Montgomery County police yesterday arrested a guy from California who flew to uh, Washington as part of a plan to murder Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And um, today in the Washington Post, Jason Willick has a column saying the next January 6th is already here. There are clear parallels, he writes, between last year's Trumpist movement to obstruct Congress and the current progressive movement to obstruct the Supreme Court. And he in particularly calls out folks on the left who talk about a stolen seat on the Supreme Court, questioning its legitimacy. What's the difference, he writes, between pronouncing a duly elected president illegitimate and declaring the same about a duly confirmed justices of the Supreme Court? In your book, you write about Jeff Sessions, your successor as attorney general. Sessions was aided by the fact that Republicans had stolen a seat on the Supreme Court, refusing to hold hearings on Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland. This theft left conservatives with an illegitimate 5-4 majority on the court. What do you say to Mr. Willock, who's saying you are doing the same thing the MAGA folks were doing in questioning the legitimacy of Joe Biden? What's this guy's name? Willock? Jason Willock is his name. He has a (laughs) I don't know him, but he's got a prominent op ed in The Washington Post today. Well, you know, Jason, who are you going to believe, you know, you know, me or, or your lying eyes? I mean, really, really? I mean, that is so preposterous. All right. So Merrick Garland does not get a hearing because his selection is too close to the election. So says Mitch McConnell. And then they, so he doesn't get on the Supreme court. Right. Then you put on the Supreme court, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, while people are in the process of voting. And you're going to tell me. Yeah, I get that. Yes. That's the theft (laughs) of hypocrisy. No, that's not hypocrisy. That is with regard to with regard to Merrick Garland. That is the theft of a seat that should have been appointed by President Obama that should, in fact, have occurred. And that five, four majority that would have then been progressive would have changed a range of cases, at least two of which the Janus case that dealt with labor unions and the Rucho case that dealt with partisan gerrymandering would have had probably different results. There should have been a five, four Supreme Court progressive majority for at least what, what two, three years from the time that uh, he would have gotten on the court. The point here is, is there something insidious about questioning the legitimacy of the court that could lead to violence such as the threat to Kavanaugh's life? Look, abhor and denounce everything that that idiot was trying to do with regard to, to Justice Kavanaugh. I'm even against protests in front of public officials' houses. I think that's counterproductive. It's not necessary. There's a whole bunch of places where you can express um, your, your views. But the reality is that the 6-3 majority on the court now, the 5-4 majority that existed before, after Merrick Garland's inability to get on the court, does, at least in my mind, and I think it legitimately um, in, in the minds of others, you know, gives you an ability to question the legitimacy of the court. And yeah, so that's a hard thing to say. I revere the Supreme Court, and yet I say what I say. It doesn't mean that my criticism of the court should lead to people threatening to or trying to kill Supreme Court justices. It does mean that people ought to question you know, the rationale that the court uses to come up with these increasingly 
conservative um, opinions in that are inconsistent with precedent. You know, they're coming up with decisions in the court now, potentially with regard to Roe, that is a function not of a change in circumstance, but a change in personnel on the court. And if you, that's a dangerous road to go down, that Supreme Court decisions are a function of who sits on the court as opposed to a legitimate interpretation of the law and precedent. I think it's worth pointing out uh, that you're not just throwing up your hands and saying the Supreme Court is illegitimate. You have a prescriptive part of your book, I think it's part three, where you actually talk about in some kind of striking and novel ways how you would propose reforming the Supreme Court, in particular term limits, but also how presidents appoint justices, nominate justices, and kind of on what calendar. Uh, I had not seen that idea before. I'd uh, talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I think that we need to depressurize the whole confirmation nomination process. And so one of the ways in which you do that would be first to limit their terms to, to 18 years. Uh, I think people serving in unelected positions that powerful for 30, 40 years um, just doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, as we point out in, you know, in, in the book, uh, Supreme Court justices at the beginning of the, the country served basically until they died. You know, and people didn't live as long. Now people on the court time their retirements so that a president of their own political persuasion can appoint their successor. So limit their terms, 18 years, have the president appoint a justice in the first or first and third years of his or her term. So, so every president gets the same number of appointments? Yeah, in the one year, one in the first year, one in the third year, and if you serve two terms, then the first year and third year of the second term. And if you serve eighteen years, you will ultimately get a court that will come back down to to nine justices. It will mean the expansion of the court in the short term, but it would mean over time, eighteen years, first and third years uh, appointments, you would have a court of uh, of nine people. And by the way, one thing that I did not know until I read your book is that Chief Justice Roberts endorsed the idea of of term limits, actually shorter term limits than you. He proposed 15 years. You say 18. Right. I I say 18 because with my first and third year appointment by the, the president, it would have us get, we would stay at nine justices doing it in a regular process and then would not make each vacancy, um, you know, so uh, so societal um, changing in the way that we view them now. It would depressurize them and make it just a more normal, a more normal process. So every president would serve, would appoint two people, um, you know, per term. So it, it's a proposal that makes an awful lot of sense, but I'm going to hazard a guess that it doesn't have much support uh, from the Republican senators in D.C. Does it have any prospect of success? Well, you know, I, you probably, I think it's probably safe to say that right now the, the prospects are not good. And yet that's not a reason not to advance the idea and then work to try to make it happen. One of the things in the book is that, you know, I talk about patriots, regular American citizens who fought for a, a country that did not exist and that they could only imagine as coming into um, existence. And I think that's the way we have to view the challenges to our democracy now with the proposals that I have made. Yeah, it's difficult. It, it, it's hard to envision that it actually happens, but I'm sure that at some point, you know, Dr. King, Ralph Abernathy, Andrew Young, John Lewis might've sat around on a Sunday night and said, 
Are we really going to be able to destroy an American system of apartheid? And yet they fought for an America that they had never existed, and they made it happen. We can do it again. So we've had this uh, horrible uh, spate of mass shootings in recent weeks, uh, almost as though it's, uh, as I said before, uh, like a pandemic of mass shootings we've got going on. The uh, Senate is trying to craft something that could actually pass in the uh, in the form of uh, gun control or gun safety. This is an issue you've had many you've dealt with for many years. You tried very early on, uh, as I remember, as Attorney General, raising uh, an assault weapons ban, reinstating it, and then. As I recall it, as I think believe we reported at Newsweek, you were told to shut up by the White House and stop talking about it. Is there any prospect of getting anything that could make a difference about these mass shootings that you see? And looking back on it, you know, was the Obama White House wrong to not push harder earlier to reinstate the assault weapons ban? Yeah, I think an opportunity was missed to to push for the, uh, the the reinstitution of the assault weapons ban. And you're right. I mean, I got a lot of grief saying that we should have an assault weapons ban that just happened to be that which the president had said when he was running for office. You know, people in the White House were like, hey, "Nope, can't talk about guns." I'm like, "I can't talk about guns." I'm like, "I'm the Attorney General, and I'm dealing with a, an issue here." So I, I, you're right. I got excoriated, you know, for uh, for, for saying that. And I was about a thousand percent right, and they were about a thousand percent wrong when it came to fighting for an assault weapons ban. The prospects, you know, I think we'll see what comes out of the Senate, and that will be hopefully a first step towards taking, doing all the things that we need to do to get a handle on this gun problem. It's not a function only of, you know, mental health. There are a whole bunch of, you know, people who have mental health issues around the world, and we don't see the kinds of mass shootings or gun violence deaths that we see in other nations. It's, it's, this is really a, it's a gun question. And so we got to break the, the stranglehold that the gun industry, not the gun, we can't get stop saying the gun lobby, that the gun industry has on our political system, which is one of the reasons why in the book I say we've got to stop this. We have to ban partisan gerrymandering because that allows people to take positions inconsistent. Politicians take positions inconsistent with the desires of their constituents and face no political consequence. It's why we see, you know, these anti-choice laws not favored by any of the people in any of the states in which they're happening. All the polls show that nobody wants Roe versus Wade state by state to be overruled. Now, the margins are larger in, in New York than they are in Texas and Oklahoma. And the same thing with guns. 80, 90 percent of the American people want to have background checks. Uh, 60% of the American people want to have a ban on assault weapons, and yet we don't see it happening. Gerrymandering, gerrymandering, partisan gerrymandering is a, is a prime um, reason for that. Well, we've just been through redistricting in this cycle. I'm doing this podcast from New York, where there's been a lot of controversy and um, redrawn lines, um, pitting Democrats against each other, all sorts of unusual fallout from that process. You've been doing this since you left, and in some ways, uh, once the Voting Rights Act was gutted and you lost some of those levers, you turned to, to gerrymandering and redistricting. How do you assess your efforts and the progress that's been made or not been made um, since you started this process, looking at what's just happened over the last uh, year? Yeah, I think we have a fundamentally more fair process 
Um, we've had a more fundamentally more fair process um, this time in 2021, 2022 than we did in 2011. You know, if you look at that kind of the, the, the scorecard, I mean, it's one way you can judge it and look at Congress. There are going to be more potential Biden seats than potential Trump seats if you just look at the way in which the, um, the districts have been drawn. State legislatures are going to be more fair than they were. Um, the Republican trifecta control has been um, has been reduced. I think it's like 56% of the people in this country will vote in states where the lines were drawn as a result of reforms or significant changes as opposed to 2011. And yet we're still not at the place where we need to be because about if, if things had gone, I think, in a totally fair way, we would have, we would have seen 40% more competitive seats. Uh, have any states um, moved moved to nonpartisan commissions uh, since you started this process? Yeah, uh, we supported and got every time you put that issue before the people, they vote for it. And so that happened in Utah, in Michigan and in Missouri. And what did the legislatures do in Missouri and Utah? They essentially, you know, uh, disempowered um, those those commissions. But the one in Michigan is is still in effect. One in Virginia that we supported or supported the concept, but not the way in which it was constructed. I I predicted it would fail. And in fact, it did. But at least in those four states, those commissions were put in place as a result of um, either action by citizens and ballot initiatives or because Democrats decided, in, as they did in Virginia, to give up the redistricting power um, that, they, that they had through the legislature. So I have a, a f- one final question, at least for me. We started off our conversation talking about the quote in your book that democracy is on the brink of collapse. How close are we? How long do we have? We are distressingly close. You know, uh, there's a quote in there um, from Hemingway about, you know, bankruptcy. You know, how does bankruptcy start? I think, you know, it's gradually and then suddenly. Um, And I think that's the concern I have here. You know, where we see our democracy on the brink teetering. We saw January the 6th. And if we're not careful, that which seems to be kind of a gradual slide can be something that happens quite suddenly. Um, This is a time for action. I'm not being an alarmist. I'm not speaking in hyperbolic terms. Um, Our democracy is on the line. And um, it's not a question of what happens in 2024. It's what happens over the course, frankly, of the next, what, five, six months at this point between now and, and, um, and, and, and November, and who's elected in November. There are movements afoot by Republicans to, you know, get at uh, um, the electoral infrastructure. Who counts the votes? You know, people at the lowest levels, not president, vice president, but who actually, who are going to be the local election commissioners. So this battle has to take place on a whole range of uh, a whole range of levels. But I'm very concerned about democracy. So this is my last question, which is, you know, this is a multi-front war uh, to save democracy. If you had to prioritize and pick the three most important areas uh, to focus on right now, what would they be? I think halting these voter suppression efforts, banning um, partisan gerrymandering, and then probably money in, in, in politics. I mean, you know, the stuff that Sheldon Whitehouse has been talking about, I think, so eloquently. Um, dark um, money and all dark that. money. Yeah. Uh, and that if you get those, if you could deal with those three things, I think you could get, you would change in a fundamental way, you know, our, our, our system. Well, all you need is a new Supreme Court uh, for that, but uh, for all three, actually. But 
Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I think things can be drawn in such a way that um, you can have them pass muster. Some of the things will require, you're, you're right, Michael, some things would require a new court or a court willing to overrule some bad precedents. But, um, you know, th there are also ways in which you can do things through the state Supreme Courts, which is what we have done. You know, when the United States Supreme Court said, we're not gonna hear partisan gerrymandering cases, we said, all right, fine. We'll use state constitutions and state courts to bring our cases. And we've been extremely successful there. Hope springs eternal. Uh, in any case, um, Eric Holder, I want to thank you again. The book is our unfinished March. And um, you were the inaugural guest on Skullduggery. Uh, you've been a repeat guest. And um, we will be having you on in the future as well. Thanks. All right. Well, thanks for having me. And hope does spring eternal. And if we stay focused and active, we can change that hope into reality. We should be optimistic about what we can do for this country.